Good morning. It is Monday, June 8th, and this is Community Pulse, your local report on the coronavirus pandemic in mid-Missouri. You can catch Community Pulse Monday through Thursday at 9 a.m. on KOPN, and all episodes can be found online at kopn.org and on our Facebook page. Today on Community Pulse, hundreds of thousands of people have taken to the streets in protest of police brutality and in support of the Black Lives Matter movement. Locally, here in Columbia, an estimated more than 1,000 people marched downtown on Sunday to show support for this movement. And last week, about 100 Mizzou healthcare workers and students kneeled for eight minutes and 46 seconds. The length of time, Minneapolis police officer Derek Traven had his knee on George Floyd's neck, which led to Floyd's death. The demonstrators are part of the group White Coats for Black Lives. And over the weekend, Boone County Health Director Stephanie Browning released a letter that stated, quote, systemic racism is a public health emergency. So today we are taking a deeper look on the health implications of the use of the crowd control agent tear gas, commonly utilized police during large protests. We are joined today by Dr. Elizabeth Alleman, local family physician and host of Your Health Matters here on KOPN. Good morning, Elizabeth. Good morning, Mallory. Thank you so much for that uh, great summary and introduction. Um, Before we get started on our topic, I want to go over some data, numbers. Uh, Worldwide, 7 million cases, uh, 406,000 deaths, and a little over 3 million people are recovering. In the United States, we've crossed 2 million documented cases with 112,000 deaths and 761 uh, people recovering. In Missouri, we have 15,120 cases with 828 deaths. In Boone County, 189 cases with two deaths. Um, And let's see, just trying to look at all of my windows that I have open. so in Boone County, uh, so the Boone County website, sometimes different sources have different total numbers. But um, so the percentage in Boone County, the percentage of cases that are white is 68% and African-American is 29%. And the, it's important to note that African-Americans make up about 8% of our, or about 9% of our population. But um, so they're re- overrepresented by a factor of three in the number of COVID cases. We really can't talk very much about the statistics of two deaths. Um, and um, uh, Statewide, um, 43% of cases are white and 31% of uh, cases are black. Um, And I wasn't able to find very quickly before we did this, but I'll have it for tomorrow, what percentage, how that compares to the percentage of the Missouri population. Um, And in St. Louis, um, I'm trying to find it. Um, by, let's see, by race and ethnicity. Okay, uh, it is harder to tell, but um, I don't have that number right in front of me, but um, black or African are um, much, are way over, over um, 
represented per 100,000 population. Oh, that's I see how it is. So it's between almost 1,000 per 100,000 population if they're black or African. And um, white people, it's less than 250 per 100,000. So, you know, four times the rate um, based on their population. And Elizabeth, did you say that that was statewide statistics? That's St. Louis. St. Louis, okay. So again, all of these statistics are being reported a little bit differently, and and there are lots of opinions about how these statistics should be reported. So we're just going to have to... um, uh, live with the situation that we have. We we that so many things were different. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think the, the the indication is that still, um, uh, black and brown people are carrying a heavier burden of the coronavirus pandemic. They're also um, statistically much more likely to have suffered significantly financially from the changes that have happened in response to coronavirus. They're also clearly much more likely to experience um, violence or death at the hands of the police. Um, so these three large pandemics that are happening in the United States are just um, over the burden of them is being laid mostly on our uh, fellow citizens who are African-American than by white people. So it's just another place where it's not that if you're white, you can't get COVID. It's just that you're less likely to get it and less likely to die once you get it. Mm-hmm. So, which brings it me to my, you know, I've just been watching um, the use of uh, tear gas and other respiratory dispersants. Um, and there are a couple of different ones that are used in the United States. And really, the specifics are more about um, language than the effects and the specific The differences between them are really very small as far as its effects on people as far as we can tell. Um, So uh, there's a a lovely um, reporting by ProPublica done, I think, last week sometime, uh, June 4th, um, about um, the use of tear gas. And we'll put that in the links, uh, you know, up on our website and on Facebook. I'm sure that you can accomplish that for us. Yep. And um, it just really is a nice overview and has a lot of interesting um, links. And so I, there were some things I thought about tear gas, like, um, you know, people can, you, you can buy it yourself. You can carry it as a way to fend off an attacker. So people can carry mace or pepper spray or, um, and uh, I sort of thought that if it was a consumer product, then somehow there must be some safety about it. Um, but it turns out that it's not really a very safe thing. Um, that there are evidence, there are instances of people dying from their exposure to these respiratory irritants. And I'm going to call tear gas, I'm going to call it all tear gas, because it's a non-specific thing, even though I think there were some interesting things by some uh, PR folks from the White House trying to say that what was used in front of the White House was not tear gas, um, as if pepper spray or mace would be better. So when I say tear gas, I mean the collective um, uh, 
universe of all respiratory irritants that are used for crowd control. Um, so I did not realize I they were used at um, Standing Rock, and I heard people call them uh, chemical warfare. And I honestly, in my mind, I thought, well, no, that that's really a strong statement. I think that may be overplaying that language. And, and the more I dive, delve into it, it it's not. So it's not the same as mustard gas that was used in World War One, which caused fairly rapid death from respiratory failure. So it does not, most people exposed to tear gas do not die. And so when people say chemical warfare, I think mustard gas and, and, but no, it's a, it's a larger, broader thing. But I did not realize that um, by international convention, it's not legal to use these in my military forces who are fighting each other. So uh, as the United States, we don't use it. Our military doesn't use it. Now, I'm not sure why we have it, but anyway, apparently we're not supposed to use it. We might be using it, but um, there are international agreements against the use of tear gas in war. Um, And during the time that that was being negotiated, there was an exception carved out for the use of these dispersants by uh, police. That's disturbing to me that we believe that it's okay to use something on civilians that we don't think it's okay to use on soldiers. Um, it is it is billed as a as a non lethal crowd control method, but I don't think we can consider it non lethal because there are evidences of deaths from it. Um, certain people are a little bit more vulnerable to. Um, the effects of tear gas are people with lung disease, so people with asthma, chronic obstructive pulmonary disease, um, chronic bronchitis are, um, by reports, more uh, vulnerable. And even healthy military recruits who are exposed to tear gas as a part of their training, it's been noted that it doubles um, their risk of developing influenza common cold, bronchitis, and other respiratory infections in the weeks following their exposure compared to baseline. So um, we would expect that um, people who are not as healthy as military recruits in training uh, would have a larger, it would have a larger impact. It's pretty clear that it has a much larger impact on children. And when people are Coming out for nonviolent rallies, they often bring their children, which they have a perfect right to do. And I will say, I have heard people on Facebook saying, you know, what, who would take their child, who would irresponsibly take their child to a rally? And I'm going to say that um, as a parent uh, of a young child, when that was true for me, we took our young child to rallies from the time she was uh, newborn in a sling up until, I mean, she still goes to rallies. Um, so I um, think it's an important part of civic uh, participation, um, and I don't think that the the answer to well this affects children more is that oh well then you should leave your children at home. Which brings me to the next thing is that this is an indiscriminate use. Oh wait a minute, other people who are vulnerable. It appears that pregnant uh, people are vulnerable, and that it may it's associated with an increased risk of miscarriage. And that there are some people who have repeated exposure to tear gas in places with repeated um, protests. So, for example, in Ferguson um, and around uh, the protests about 
police violence there several years ago, there were some people who got repeated exposures, and there's some evidence that they are much more likely to have long-term, perhaps permanent, lung damage. Um, and this is increased, of course, most things like this, the higher the dose, the worse it is. So when they are used in confined spaces, when they're used in places where people do not have immediate ways to run away, when they're used um, at, at in large amounts or they're used repeatedly. So it's pretty clear that the people who are interested in other safer ways to use tear gas talk about using it as a last resort using it only in well-ventilated areas, using it only where people have a way to run away because what you're trying to do is get people to run away. Um, uh, and that you should not use it repeatedly in the same location, which I, when I'm looking at video, it, news reports, it looks like they are being used in um, repeatedly in the same location. And then there are these videos of these respiratory irritants being sprayed directly at a person. And that, I think, violates all of our senses of that being a reasonable thing to do. Um, so in um, Missouri, as a result of the use around the um, Ferguson um, uh, uh, protests, there were um, apparently some lawsuits, and there was an agreement with law enforcement that um, we would use it differently here in Missouri. So, um, and I'm trying to look for those specifics. Um, anyway. Um, While you're looking for those, um, yeah. Elizabeth, I also just want to note that, um, you know, the tear gas is dangerous for a lot of reasons, the actual gas, or I guess it's like a powder that, that, uh, yeah. it really is a powder, but also the canisters that the tear gas can come in when those are thrown into crowds, there are certain types that will break into certain pieces, kind of like a grenade, which is extremely dangerous for, for the crowd as well. So there, there's a lot of, a lot of different forms of, um, its impact on, on health and just people's well being. Right, and there are there are very clever um, modifications of this. Like, there are some ways that they can be canisters can be sent into crowds, and then what happens is they have a slight explosion, which creates them creates many little um, tear gas canisters that disperse themselves before then they explode mm. and release the, the tear gas. Um, and it's just hard to imagine that that's being used in a focused way. Mm -hmm. So um, police fired tear gas into people's backyards in Ferguson and set it off near children. Um, uh, I'm still not finding it. But, oh, so they reached a settlement. So that one day during protests when police fired tear gas into a crowd, people ran into a nearby coffee shop that filled with gas, creating a toxic environment and a confined space. So some people sued and reached a settlement with Missouri law enforcement agencies to give proper warnings, adhere to minimum force guidelines, and refrain from using tear gas against lawful protesters. So those are apparently agreements we have in Missouri, and I am going to do a little bit more reading about what those are and whether local and state law enforcement agencies know that. Um, because, you know, we have this, this law, this policy in the United States of um, 
of allowing um, agents of the uh, executive branch uh, partial immunity from any responsibility if they are doing their job and they didn't know that what they were doing was against the law. So I would like to be a part of making sure that I have documentation that everybody knows that this is an agreement and that they need to give proper warnings, minimum force guidelines, and rephrase from using tear gas against lawful protesters. I would like to see whether we could come up with a way, in at least in the city of Columbia, for us to all agree that during this time of COVID, we would not use tear gas. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and going, you know, a little bit, Expanding the picture a little bit, there were 1,300 public health officials that last week signed a letter saying that the United States should ban the use of tear gas in protests. So hopefully that that goes somewhere, too. Well, I would hope so. Um, I just know that, you know, most politics is local and that Mm -hmm. I can Mm -hmm. sometimes talk to my local officials when I can't really talk to my state and federal officials very easily. Yes. But yes, I think that that is something um, that we ought to be working on and, and that no person should be exposed to tear gas as far as I'm concerned. Because mm-hmm. we, you know, we're getting like these visuals of a police officer with a knee on a neck and the person is expiring under their knee and we get that that's wrong. But it's just much harder to see the death if police disperse tear gas into a crowd. And if one of those people exposed dies at least partially responsible from that um, two weeks later in a hospital, that doesn't create the same visual image, but it creates the same death. Mm -hmm. So... um, there are many ways for us to continue to have ongoing um, police uh, mistreating the public without it creating the kind of um, visual that has allowed us to effectively um, push back against this. So we just need to be looking for all of the ways that um, uh, over-policing is dangerous. Um, so I'm trying to think. We just have a few more minutes. Mallory, is there something I've left out that you think that we need to include? I've heard some people say that um, the spike in recorded cases, reported cases, um, this isn't necessarily only local people. So the spike in right. reported cases is a direct result of people going out into the streets and um, protesting, you know, without taking safety precautions. And I've heard people counter that argument by saying, actually, whatever spike we're seeing right now is probably from Memorial Day or states reopening or other things like that. So can you just shed a little bit of light on um you know, if we are seeing spikes right now, that was two weeks ago, right? It's not what's been happening right, we think today. That the, that the average, that the median of the incubation period is about a week. So, but by the time somebody gets a test, like the so that people get symptomatic between, you know, three to fourteen days after exposure. And then they have to feel sick enough that they call somebody and they go through the difficult process of acquiring a test. And then that test result has to come back. So like we did mass testing in Columbia a week ago, and uh, many some people have gotten their results and many people have not. So, um, so there's also a delay in the reporting of testing, especially as we 
you know, every time we increase the amount of tests we do, that sort of allow you know pushes the labs to increase their capacity. And so there's a little bit of a lag every time we increase our testing numbers. So I, the, the basic wisdom right now is that what epidemiologists are looking at is that when we see a rise today, we should be looking back two weeks to see what we were doing two weeks ago. So two weeks ago was Memorial Day. Mm-hmm. Um, and that in another week, we're going to start to see whatever effects we have of um, of of the protests. Mm-hmm. But what's also happening is people are we're, we're people are dining in restaurants and going to bars and um, getting their hair done and um, visiting people in each other's homes. And so we're I think all of us are feeling like it's time to start to do more things. And we are seeing gradually increasing cases, probably because we're all doing more things. Mm-hmm. And can you remind our listeners, um, if they are feeling symptoms, what their options for testing are right now, or if they've been in contact with someone who was positive. Right. So if you are contact of a known case, then you should be in contact with the health department and they will guide you about testing. And in general, what the health department is recommending is that if you are um, a contact of a case, um, then depending on how closely you were in contact, um, they are recommending that you not be tested unless you develop symptoms. I am dreaming of the day when we have so many tests that we can do that, and it feels, um, it makes my head turn to the side a little bit that we had enough to do several thousand tests on the general public, but not enough to um, test all contacts of cases. But, you know, I'm not the I'm not trying to take over someone else's job here. Um, so health department is your first step if you are a, known, a contact of a known case. If you um, are not, then you can um, go on um, nuhealth.org and follow their um, uh, web portal system to get a consultation to get a test ordered. There have been times where the nurses who were doing this swabbing at the site had standing orders and could test you have had symptoms, and I don't know the status of that right now. So it's possible you could also just drive through and tell them you have symptoms and you could get a test, but I don't know the status of that. And, or you can call my office, 443-7070, and um, we will uh, send over an order and get you tested. Um, or you can fill out a form on my website at uh, com. That's D-R-A-L-L-E-M-A-N-N. Dot com. And through Boone Hospital, the testing is free to the patient. So they will charge your, they will bill your insurance company if you have insurance. And if you do not have insurance, the testing is free. And the orders I'm sending are through Boone Hospital. I do not know what is happening at the university, but I am hoping it is also free there too. I have not heard anybody on social media complain about getting charged. Hmm. Great. So, Great. So I think that people need to know if you have symptoms, there's free testing available for you. And it's um, both systems have drive-through testing. You do not need to get out of your car. If you do not have a car at Boone Hospital, you can walk up. What they told me at the university is that they do not. They are not welcoming walk-ups or bike-ups. So you need to be in a car at the university system unless I talk to somebody who didn't have the right answer. Hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Yeah, and we'll so. we'll keep asking around about that too, and maybe we can find um, like if Como Mutual Aid or anyone is offering rides for folks who um, might need them, 
we can, mm-hmm. I'll take a look into that. Great. Great. Anything else? All right, and then upcoming this week, um, I am, uh, I expect to have Sarah Williams back on. We're going to talk about um, harm reduction. We've been spending a lot of time telling people what not to do, but now that we're opening up, I think that we are all going to be doing more things. And the question is how to do those as safely as possible in the same way we've talked about safer sex practices and harm reduction for people with um, uh, addiction. So we're, yeah, Great. we're going to bring that to the, to the pandemic. Looking forward to that conversation. Thanks so much for right. joining us today, Thanks. Dr. Alleman. Hope you have a great day. You're welcome. Bye. Bye. That's it for today's edition of Community Pulse. You can catch Community Pulse Monday through Thursday at 9 a.m. and later in the day at kopn.org and on our Facebook page. As always, we want to know what questions, comments, and insights you have to share related to living, loving, protesting, working in the midst of this pandemic. Leave a message for us at 573-874-1139 or email gm at kopn.org. Coming up is a brief music break followed by an abridged version of background briefing. Thanks for tuning in. You are listening to KOPN Columbia 89.5, your community radio station.